0: The Warsaw Security Forum has been a fixture on the defence and diplomacy talking shop circuit since 2014, one of any number of gatherings at which current and former elected officials, military officers, think tankers and journalists set the world to rights over canapes while fretting silently yet frantically about which colour lanyards outrank theirs. The 2022 Warsaw Security Forum, however, felt rather more like an urgent summit conference. Poland's border with Ukraine is an afternoon's drive from the venue. Since Russia launched its most recent assault on Ukraine on February 24th, more than three million people have crossed that border. And though many have moved on elsewhere or gone back home, Poland has been severely tested at barely one remove by Russia's aggression. The guest of honor at this year's Warsaw Security Forum, Ukraine's First Lady Olena Zelenska, acknowledged as much, thanking Poland's taxpayers as well as Poland's government.
1: Ви надаєте нам духовну зброю кожного дня. Є один старий польський девіз, який знають всі українці. Знали його задовго до війни. What
0: have we learned from nearly eight months of war? Why has Russia's military failed so badly? And how has Europe's diplomatic landscape been reshaped? This is the Foreign Desk.
2: Trying to appease Putin not to do something, they will maybe buy some time. But those time slots... Are becoming shorter and shorter liberal democracies of the world should gather together and fight for ukraine actually winning this war because otherwise there will be no peace in europe
3: the sanctions are hurting russia the sanctions are hurting the russian people and the sanctions are actually hurting long term the russian economy but the sanctions have never I repeat, they have never changed Mr. Putin's behavior.
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. We'll be speaking later to the Prime Minister of Lithuania, Ingrida Shimonita, but first. To consider the military lessons from the war in Ukraine, our first guest is General Philip Breedlove, formerly of the US Air Force, who served as NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Europe from 2013 to 2016. I began by asking General Breedlove whether he was surprised by Russia's poor military performance in Ukraine.
3: Yes, I am. I mean, we saw, I think, better capability out of the Russians in the battles of 2014. For instance, in the battle for Debaltseve, they were particularly good at marrying their drones to their artillery, to their maneuver. And I don't know if you remember the dark day, they literally took almost an entire battalion of Ukrainians off the battlefield because they were using pretty well this what we call combined arms warfare. And frankly, we have not seen that in this conflict. They have failed at the basic skills of meshing together air power, artillery power, maneuver by mechanized forces and infantry. We really haven't seen it. So what we have seen is a lot more evidence of the impact maybe of corruption and less than excellent leadership. We had tanks showing up coming off of trains without uh, laser rangefinders and radios in them that had been pilfered and all manner of things seems to have crept into the Russian military. And frankly, it's not cheap to practice these things that we call combined arms warfare. And I think that what we're seeing now is that over the past years, the SAPAD exercises and things like that were very scripted, very limited, and they probably didn't give them the appropriate training to accomplish what we believe are basic skills of how you marry these various elements of power together to get increased synergistic effect on the battlefield. They just have not done it in this conflict. And I do believe that Russia thought they were going to go through the Ukrainian forces very quickly with very minimal impact to their forces. And as you have heard so many times, three or four days in, we'll be having parades and they'll welcome us with flowers and this will all be over and we'll re our puppet government and we'll move on. And I don't think that they were being given good intelligence i don't think their decisions were based on appropriate assumptions etc cetera, etc cetera, so thinking especially from
0: your background in the united states air force are you surprised by how relatively small a factor russian air power has appears to have been here and and again what do you attribute
3: that to well this is i think a major finding of what happened on this battlefield in our forces We believe that establishing air superiority over the battlefield is job one of the Air Force. And then once you establish that air superiority over the battlefield, now your Air Force needs to turn in a very precise and dedicated way to attacking the ground and supporting the ground forces in their schemes of maneuver. Everyone thinks of the dogfighting. Okay, that is a certain amount of it. But what is most important really is what we call seed S-E-A-D, Suppression of Enemy Air Defenses. And that is your ability to go in and knock down the surface to air defenses that the enemy has. And so what was very clear to us in this battle is we had attributed that ability to the Russians And they have proven absolutely incapable of doing suppression of any enemy air defenses because a relatively small SAM force by the Ukrainians have almost completely frustrated Russian air attempts to support their ground forces. What we do know about Russian pilots in general is they don't fly enough. And if their flying time is very low and they're just basically practicing flying skills, They are not going to be able to do suppression of enemy air defense. It is a deadly mission, and if you don't dedicate pilots and training to it, you won't do it well. And I think that has been the problem for the Russian Air Force.
0: It wouldn't, of course, be a military decision to make. It would be civilian leadership who made the ultimate decision about any response to any use of nuclear weapons by Russia. But what would be the correct response to something like that, something proportionate or absolute calamity.
3: Okay, so when you consider how we might respond to a Russian nuclear event, first, we have to understand sort of what is in the option kit that Russia could bring to the table, because I believe that any Western response is going to be immediately tied to the severity and type of those options. Probably the least impactful option is what is typically called a demonstration nuclear event. And so they would take a smallish weapon and explode it out over the Black Sea where no one is hurt by it or exploded in an extremely unpopulated area near the battlefield over a forest.
0: This is signaling their willingness to let the genie out That's of the right.
3: This is more about deterrence and scaring the West and trying to break up the Western alliance and, you know, Russia signaling, we're going to do it, watch, and then hoping that this disintegrates support to Ukraine. The second sort of option is an option whereby they explode a weapon at altitude. Over some portion of the battlefield or wherever. And these airburst explosions cause much less damage on the ground, sometimes no damage on the ground. But they are incredibly detrimental to all manner of electronic business in the area. It's called EMP, electromagnetic bolts. And communications are disrupted. Chips are fried. Banking systems are disrupted. All manner of things that happen electronically are going to be severely impacted. And so the impact there is really more economic, et cetera, than it is physical damage. And then the third category really has two options, and that is that they would actually take a small nuclear weapon and drop it over a tactically relevant target. If they drop that small nuke over something on the battlefield, that would sort of be seen one way. If they drop that small nuke over a population center, that would be the most drastic, and it would be seen a different way which one of these options they might use and how impactful they are to either people, economy, forces, or cities, those would all then be rolled into what would be the Western response. And the ranges then are almost as wide open, something relatively less impactful but signaling to something that would eliminate a large part of the Russian military forces on the ground in Ukraine.
0: But do you think, though, that that response would be governed by a sense of proportionality or, or is the risk with proportionality that you trap everybody in a cycle of, of escalation? The
3: proportionality is exactly what it would be. That's a word that is used in the deliberations. And so, yes, there are risks in that just perpetuating a string of proportional responses. But the fact of the matter is, one, I don't think a Western coalition would even consider a nuclear response, I think that's off the table for the West to a small attack. I think it would be some level of very impactful conventional response to show Mr. Putin that there will be a cost associated with your stupid decisions about nukes.
0: Just from a military point of view, from where we are right now, how do you see this ending and on what kind of timescale?
3: How this ends is completely, almost 100 percent, dependent on how the West continues to support Ukraine. If the West continues to give Ukraine what it needs, I believe the Ukrainian military force is more than capable of expelling Russia from Ukrainian lands. Eventually, eventually, to even include Crimea. We already know in the famous words of Game of Thrones, winter is coming. Winter is coming. And Mr. Putin is going to weaponize winter. He's already started with his energy business. And I think Mr. Putin is hoping he can make it to winter because his number one goal, and actually I believe his best chance at disrupting the alliance's response, is to separate the electorate the people of our nations from their elected officials and force into the conversation because of the cold, the high prices of food and all these things that Mr. Putin is doing to weaponize winter. They begin to question their officials, why am I cold and why am I hungry? Because we're supporting Ukraine and he hopes to separate them so that support for Ukraine begins to fade away. This is, I think, his big ploy, because his military is being defeated, and it's going to continue to be defeated. And he needs now a new set of tools to try to win this fight. And his best tool is to try to separate Ukraine from the nations that are supporting it.
0: Are the sanctions regimes as currently imposed and perhaps even further additional sanctions regimes assuming anybody can think of anything that they haven't sanctioned already is that going to be sufficient at any point to change
3: vladimir putin's behavior or or is he past that you've really gotten to the crux of the issue with the latter part of your question i have long asserted i believe today that the sanctions are hurting russia the sanctions are hurting the russian people and the sanctions are actually hurting long-term the Russian economy. But the sanctions have never, I repeat, they have never changed Mr. Putin's behavior. Now, some would assert that if we continue these sanctions, and there are new levels of sanctions, if we disconnect them from SWIFT, we have not done that yet, and that is a major step. There are sanctions yet to be taken, but the real question is, will eventually so much sanctions cause internal revolt? I have in the past said no, but I think now that the regime of sanctions is causing enough unrest that now his mobilization on top of that might have the effect of deposing him. But the fact of the matter is, sanctions have never changed Mr. Putin's actions, and we need to develop tools that will change his actions.
0: Actually, just to follow up on that mobilization issue, does that strike you as actually militarily relevant? Is that going to change anything on the battlefield or are 300,000 reluctant, dubiously motivated, badly trained conscripts actually more likely to get in the way?
3: If they were properly trained and if they were properly kitted and if they were mated to the right missions on the battlefield, they could have an impact. But Mr. Putin's military and his leadership haven't demonstrated any of those three in any actions to date. But we're already seeing some of these troops have made it to the battlefield. And some of them received no training. They got a rifle, a knife, some stuff to carry. They were told to bring their own medical supplies and things, and boom, they're in the fight. So. If that is going to be the approach of Putin, I don't think that we need to be overly concerned about this. And frankly, my opinion is Mr. Putin knew the problems that mobilization would bring. And he has fought that for a long time because he knew the societal problems it would cause And yet I think that inner circle around them, the people that some are calling the war party right around him, convinced him he had to do this. And I think now they're seeing that they may have bit off more than they can chew with this mobilization.
0: Your former Deputy General Sir Richard Sherriff has been a, a fairly frequent guest on Monocle 24's programs. And we asked him once about Finland and Sweden and their applications to join NATO. And he said when he was Deputy Supreme Allied Commander and I think I quote him accurately, he used to dream of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Are you as excited by the prospect?
3: Yes, (laughs) I had the same dreams. (laughs) Finland and Sweden are extremely capable military nations, and they are very solid, extremely capable democracies that support the appropriate application of military power. These are the perfect additions to NATO. And beyond that, both Finland and Sweden have been exercising with us for years at a very high level. I don't say this in an ultra-critical way, so please take it appropriately. Finland and Sweden are more compatible with NATO than some of our NATO allies are compatible with NATO. And they will arrive and immediately make military contribution to our alliance. These are two incredible military forces and incredible democratic nations that we really want on our team.
0: Well, an addendum to that question then, because obviously Ukraine has signaled its interest in joining NATO. Is it too soon? Does Russia need to be finally thoroughly evicted from Ukrainian territory before that can happen?
3: Yes. Sadly, this is the way that the articles of the Atlantic Council are interpreted, and that is if there is a a land dispute on a border or inside a nation, a nation is not gonna be brought aboard until that's resolved. Caustically, we in the military call that Mr. Putin's veto. You know, he didn't like the idea Georgia was about. Boom, invade Georgia. He didn't like the idea that Ukraine was talking about it. In 14, boom, invade Ukraine. Transnistria. Soon we're going to probably see a Russian president in Nagorno-Karabakh. So this is exactly what Mr Putin understands and I think is part of the motivation, not all of it, but part of the motivation for several of these incursions by his military forces.
0: That was General Philip Breedlove, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. As we were just discussing, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has taught us a number of crucial military lessons, but how has the conflict reshaped diplomatic relations in Europe? Our next guest is someone who knows all too well what living next door to Russia is like. Ingrida Shimonite is the Prime Minister of Lithuania. She sat down with Monocle's Emma Searle in Warsaw. Emma began by asking the Prime Minister to explain her country anti-autocratic foreign policy stance.
2: Well, I think it's no surprise that Lithuania, since it regained independence in 1990, was pushing very hard to get back to a transatlantic community where we should have belonged throughout the way, but Russian occupation has pulled us out of it in 1940s. So during all those years of occupation, of being under Soviet regime, we knew that this is not the place we belong. We belong to European community, to transatlantic community, and of course that was something we were pushing hard. But you know, for us, this was not about just you know the benefits of the developed world and the economy and, and everything, and you know, nice cars, people nicely dressed. But it was first and foremost about the idea of the transatlantic community. And this idea is rule-based order, values like liberal democracy, freedom of speech, private property, and everything what is a fundamental thing for a real market economy. So our foreign policy is just that we practice what we preach. It's not just we say that, you know, it's freedom of speech and democracy and everything and values, but we sort of do some dealings under carpet with people who might later blackmail us or do something about it. Because for small countries, this network of international agreements and of rule-based world is a security aspect itself, not only the participation in partnerships like NATO or European Union, but also the whole concept that there are Agreements that boundaries cannot be pushed back and forth and everything, I think it's important. Since our independence has been restored in 1990, so there are quite many people in my country who still remember how it was in that previous life, uh, it is easier for us to sort of make comparisons because for many people, this liberty, this freedom becomes sort of an air. You know, you just breathe it and you do not understand it is there until somebody can come and grab it away from you.
1: And when it comes to dealing with Russia right now, given everything that's happened in Ukraine, do you think a diplomatic exit from this conflict is even possible now? Well, I think
2: diplomacy is always on the table. And even if you have situations like exchange of military people, for example, on both sides, it always involves some part of diplomacy and those sort of tiny things that are happening at the scenery of war because the war is ongoing, but still people from Azov style were able to get away from Russia. And of course, there were huge diplomatic efforts and endeavors like that. But for this particular war situation... There will be a diplomatic solution at some point, but not now, because I don't think that Russia wants it. Putin is speaking much about negotiations, but he doesn't actually mean it, because he doesn't want to negotiate. He wants to impose his own conditions on the others, and this is not diplomacy.
1: I want to pivot now to Putin's so-called partial mobilization. We know that thousands of Russian men have now been conscripted to join the Russian armed forces, and as a result, many are fleeing. And this is something that's divided Europe, the issue of whether to accept Russians fleeing the draft as refugees in Europe. And Lithuania and other Baltic nations understandably have expressed reluctance. And I just wondered if you could explain Lithuania's stance on this. And what would you say to EU officials who would argue that not allowing These people fleeing the draft might actually put them in more danger and that it's not constructive.
2: Well, I would say that Vilnius for quite a long period of time, and not only now, but throughout the history, was known to be a sort of an anti-Moscow. And this is not only in this episode of life, but also historically throughout the very, very long period of hundreds of years. So if you ask me, I would say that in my city, there are plenty of Russian opposition people, plenty of journalists, NGO activists and whomsoever who've been kicked off Russia or had to flee In the past, for, I don't know, 10 years throughout Putin's regime, we were known for arranging the meetings of Russian opposition, the gatherings, the debate about Russian future. I mean, we are not a country that is deaf and dumb to Russian people who are democratic. They find shelter in my country. It seemed like Belarusian opposition, like Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya and many others. But what is, I think, a mistake in the current situation is when Some of our friends here are saying that, you know, everybody who is fleeing Putin now are opposition activists or pacifists or whatsoever. This is misunderstanding on how Russia functions, because so many people were feeling fine until the war did not knock at their door. I mean, they were fine, literally fine, with the fact that their army is fighting Ukrainians, grabbing the land, killing people, and performing war crimes. But once there was a threat to their physical life, because they might actually have been conscripted and sent over to the front, then all of a sudden they said, we don't want this. Well, this is a position, but I don't see how that makes a person, you know, an opposition or civil society activist. This is just a personal perception of the situation. And what we were doing throughout the way, and we are still doing, I mean, humanitarian visas are still being issued. If a person is known for its track record of being politically active or active in NGO or in the media, we will definitely grant a person asylum or a humanitarian visa and take care of him or her. But it cannot be universal because all sorts of people flee Russia. Quite many of them have letter Z shaved on their kid's head. Do you really believe that these are people who are actually very much caring about Putin killing Ukrainians? No, I think they just don't want to die. And this is not our country's responsibility to extend this comfort to people who does not have a real political position.
1: What outcome are you hoping for? How do you hope this war will come to an end?
2: I know that there is only one outcome that is a real outcome. It's a defeat of Russia and a real defeat of Russia by Ukraine. Because otherwise, whatever happens, it would never bring peace. Because all the agreements, like they were under Minsk agreement in 2014, or other cases, any sort of trying to appease Putin not to do something, they will just maybe buy some time. But those time slots, are becoming shorter and shorter every time. So I think that the liberal democracies of the world should gather together and fight for Ukraine actually winning this war, because otherwise there will be no peace in Europe.
1: And just finally, I want to ask you about Taiwan. And this is something we've spoken to your foreign minister, Mr. Lansbergis, about because Lithuania has taken a bold stance on Taiwan. Your government came out in support of Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. And of course, we know that earlier this year, there was a row caused with China over the opening of a Taiwan representative office in Vilnius. Why does Lithuania think that the stand is worth taking? What we
2: found worth doing is strengthening our ties with Taiwan because we saw quite many areas of good potential cooperation, starting from business to academia, then to social life and culture and everything. And what was not really right is that some third countries (laughs) decided that they can have a say on the sovereign decisions of Lithuanian government. We just thought that it was in our government's program to strengthen those ties and we just opened the office for economic and whatever cooperation and here comes a Chinese government that says you are not allowed to do this, why? We had quite similar experience with also Russia or Belarus in the past, where all of a sudden the pipeline would break apart. All of a sudden the veterinary checks become very stringent and you do not know why. And it happens that those countries do not actually explain what is the problem. They just accuse and blame, but never explain what is really a problem. That was the Prime Minister of Lithuania,
0: Ingrida Shimonite, speaking to Monocle's MSL in Warsaw. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. Thanks also this week to all the team at the Warsaw Security Forum and tune in next week for the second of our shows produced in Warsaw. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle Magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.